The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. What an incredible morning it has been. Um, It's been truly a great morning. I can't imagine if yesterday were today with weather. I don't know how we would have managed. Um, But I'm so thankful to just be here, to be singing together, to be encouraging each other. Um, Listen, this morning, uh, I want to bring us back to simplicity. I love simplicity. I love simplicity. Uh, In fact, one of the things we say here a lot is that as a church, we are a gospel-centered, intentionally simple church. And and what that means is gospel-centered, which means that we're not here for life hacks or a concert or a motivational speech. Um... We're certainly not here to gather around the charisma of a pastor. I'm not that guy. (laughs) I'll never be that guy. We are here as the people of God to center around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. That makes us a one-trick pony. Unapologetically, a one-trick pony. Uh, pony here because we believe that we never graduate from the gospel. We never get over it. We never outgrow it. You never mature beyond it. And that honestly, the more mature we become in the gospel, the more we realize we need the simplicity of the gospel. So we're gospel centered, but along with that, um, we're intentionally simple, which means we do our best to guard against the clutter the distraction, the, the noise, programs, productions, practices that would take away from that, that would distract from what really matters, the good distracting from the great. Um, we are simple, and we're simple not just because of our age and stage and size and budget. We are simple because we are simple, intentionally simple. And I would argue, actually, that these two things, gospel-centered and intentionally simple, actually come together. They're one and the same. Because, because we are intentionally simple so that we are gospel-centered. We are centered on the gospel so we seek simplicity. We seek simplicity. We desire to be excellent in that. So listen, this morning is going to be a very, an intentionally simple gospel-centered sermon because this text is going to bring us to the most fundamental and core truth of the gospel. We're coming back to the basics, back to simplicity Um, And listen, before we pray and get into the word, um, if you are new here, if you are, maybe you are new to the faith, maybe you are here, you are seeking and searching, maybe you are here right now and you're wrestling with doubt in what you truly believe, I would encourage you and I pray that this text 
will bring you to the core. Will strip away all the other stuff. That, in my prayer, is that you would consider deeply what this text is going to put in front of you today. If you are a believer here this morning, even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, a long time, uh, listen, this text this morning is bringing us again back to the core. And uh, I would, uh, you know this, but you know you're prone to wonder. You know you're prone to forget. And so my prayer is that we will remember that we will anchor ourselves back into the simple truth of the gospel. We are going to finish out the, the ninth chapter of Romans, and we are just going to poke a little bit into chapter 10. That's where we're headed today. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them open with me to Romans 9 and 10. Uh, but listen, before we dive in, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, we are here this morning and we are grateful for your presence and your people and what you, you, God, you are good. You are good. You are sovereign and you are good. I thank you for the words we just sang together, the gospel we just sung over each other. And I thank you that it's true. God, this morning as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak, that we would listen. I pray that you would remove me out of the way if I get in it, and that you would speak clearly through your word and through me this morning in a way that only you receive glory. God, we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. Let's get caught up a little bit, all right? So uh, specifically in chapter nine, here's what we've seen. We've been talking a lot recently about the fact that our God is sovereign, meaning he is in control over all things, all the time, even the things we don't understand. In fact, what we've seen to push this further is that God is sovereign even over the mysteries, the things we don't fully see, the things we don't fully comprehend in our world and in life and in theology. He's sovereign over the things that we can't even wrap our minds around. In fact, um, we have said multiple times that the way of Christ, really, when it boils down to it, we are trusting in a God who knows all things who loves us perfectly, knows us perfectly, but hear me, church, but yet is not bound to tell you everything. The call is to trust in him, that as Paul has brought out already, that we are the clay, that he is the potter, and he's working all things together in his sovereignty. And when we realize this, when we realize that we are the clay, he is the potter. And instead of kind of shaking our fists up at him and saying, God, how dare you? Why are you doing this? Instead of looking at everything and saying, God, why and how are you letting this happen? Church, instead of that, there is a profound peace and joy that comes when instead of shaking our fists, We simply acknowledge that we are the clay, that he is the potter, trusting the potter. That's where there is rest. In other words, when we stop fighting the potter, when we stop 
fighting against the sovereignty of God or fighting to be sovereign like God, when we put that down, we're actually able to enter into a sweet rest and peace when we give it away. And last week, let me just push this one more step further before we get into our text. Not only is our God the sovereign God, the sovereign potter, but church, as we saw last week, he is the patient potter. He is more patient with you than you are. He is more patient with the people in your life than you could ever be. And often he's even showing his patience with people that we don't think are worthy of it. That is our God, the patient and sovereign potter. Verse 24, um, Paul also reminds us of a little bit of tension. Verse 24, we read, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So last week, Paul brings out this tension. And we, we see that, that, that Paul, Paul, are you telling us that the sovereign potter has different types of clay? For the Jewish people of the ancient world, I mean, God, I thought we were your chosen people, the people of the law, the people who did the practices, the people of Torah. I thought we were called from Abraham. I thought we were called out of slavery. I thought, I thought we were your honorable lump of clay, to use the language that Paul uses. But here, what we saw is that the potter is not only calling from the Jews only, but Paul says, but from the Gentiles as well. That gets us into our text today. Paul's going to start our text with a few quotes. And uh, the first one actually comes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. I don't know if you've read Hosea in, uh, in a while. It's, it's a good one. You should. It's crazy. I mean, just just insane, because Hosea was this strange prophet that God chose to use, not only to give him the words to speak, but God in his sovereignty chose to use Hosea's whole life as an object lesson. The poor guy. Like, I read it, I'm like, whoo. Um, but it's, it's, it's crazy. But in verse 25, Paul says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is, was not be, beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Without even having to step back into the narrative in Hosea, without even having to get into it, that message is pretty clear, is it not? Paul says, look, God is calling from all people, all, all the lumps of clay, he's calling out of them all people, not just that one over there. And there's two things with this. Um, first of all, Paul, by quoting this and by drawing us to Hosea, is reminding us this is not a new thing. This is not a new plan. God didn't go, whoo, switch plans. He didn't do that. This is the plan from the beginning. Just to be really direct to the point here. In the sovereignty of God, God chose to use the Jewish people to be a light to the nations. He chose to use them, the light, to call men and women from all nations to himself. That was his plan. They were meant to be a beacon that shined. 
They were never called to be some container that just hoarded. Ever. (laughs) The plan was always to shine. I mean, if you just think about when it all began in Genesis 12, when God first called them. In Genesis 12, what did, he, what did he say? He said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And then in you, what? All the families of the earth will be blessed. See, it's always been the plan. And by the way, pause, praise God for that plan. That God would have mercy on me. God would have mercy on us. Praise God for his plan and to call us to himself, to call those who were not my people, to now call them sons and daughters of the living God. Praise God for his plan. But that's the first thing. It's not a new plan. It is the plan. The second thing here that I thought just jumped out at me is Paul is using the Jewish scriptures to show them this. So for the Jewish brother or sister who's wrestling with this, Paul is saying basically, listen, this is Hosea. This is your prophet. This is what he says. This is what he says. And he's going to go on with that. He doesn't stop with Hosea. The second quote he gives is in verse 27. This one comes from Isaiah. He says this, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In in other words, we wouldn't be anymore. Here Paul, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 10 and then Isaiah chapter 1. And I got to be honest, this one probably stung just a little bit more. In Hosea, he's reminding them, hey, God is calling Gentiles. He was calling them from the beginning. But here in in Isaiah, this quote, Paul shows them, hey, just because you are ethnically Jewish does not earn for yourself heaven. Paul says only a remnant will be saved. Paul is reminding them like the The rest of, uh, like our text in Romans has already said, from, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. He's reminding them of this. And here, church, we've arrived where Paul is going to go and put his finger right into the center of it. This is where Paul is going to get right on to the central issue. Listen to this. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Take in this question. Take in this question. Sit with this. What are we to say then? Paul, those Gentiles... Those Gentiles who have not done all that God has commanded, they have not studied, they have not practiced Torah, those Gentiles who have done nothing, those Gentiles who are unclean, those Gentiles who are unworthy, they haven't done everything, anything, they haven't even tried to be righteous. Are you telling me that those Gentiles got it? Are you telling me that they who have done nothing to try to be righteous 
are righteous because simply they believe? Because of that somehow, because of faith, they're somehow okay and somehow righteous? Are you telling me that we, that people who are clearly less righteous than me, got it? And at the same time, Paul, are you telling me that the practicing Jewish community, the people who had been diligently memorizing and doing all that God had, all the law, who had practiced and studied the Torah, who were clean, who were trying to live their lives righteous, Paul, are you telling me that they haven't got it? Was it all for nothing? That they haven't reached it? How could this be? First of all, God, that doesn't seem fair. Second of all, God, that really doesn't seem fair. And third, God, that's not fair. <laughs> it just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not fair. How could this be? The question here is this. How could a people who are not, who are not trying to be good, be good? Well, the people who are trying to be good, not be good. How? Why? How could this be? And listen to Paul's answer, verse 32. Why? Same question we just asked. Why? Because they, that is the Jewish people, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. There it is. Paul dropping his finger on the central issue. I want to be as clear here as I can possibly be. Following Jesus is not about what you need to do to get to God. Following Jesus is not about you being good or good enough. It is not about your works or what you do or think you're going to do when you clean up your act. Following Jesus is not about your performance. Following Jesus is about trusting what your God did to get to you. Following Jesus is about what Jesus did, how good he is. Following Jesus is not about your work, it's about his work that was completed on the cross. That is what following Jesus is. Following Jesus is trusting Jesus and not yourself. And all of the good works, by the way, the obedience, the holiness, the godliness, it flows from faith. It's not for faith. It flows from faith. Now we do these things in faith. Church, we can fill our lives with good things. We can fill our lives even doing God things. You know, going to church and... Giving and serving. We can fill our lives, even with telling people about Jesus, evangelizing. We can fill our lives with good and God things. But apart from faith in Jesus, they do not save. They never have they never will. Not even trying to obey God's law, apart from faith, will save you. Filling your life with God things will not earn salvation for you. In fact, um, 
One of the hardest things Jesus ever said in the Gospels, for me as a pastor, comes in his sermon in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, he drops this little, this, this truth that just, he says, not everyone who does things in my name will enter heaven. In his, in his sermon, he says, on that day, many are going to say, that's the final day, the day of judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Did we not, aren't we aren't doing all these things for you, God? Then I will declare to, to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Doing God things, doing things even for God, they do not save you. Salvation is provided only through grace. Because our God is a gracious God. And this grace is not something you earn. This grace is a gift that is to be received by faith. Jesus accomplished the work. All of it. He is righteous. You do not save you. You trust in the one who does. I want to pause for just one more kind of pastoral moment here. Um, I'm not overstating this. This is the single most, the biggest prayer I pray for our church. Second to none. That we would not be a church full of people who know about God, who know about the Bible, who even know how to summarize it, who would know how to be churchy, who would know how to do and dress and Stand and smell Christian. I don't know if we have a smell. Uh, hopefully not. But that we would do all of those things in self-righteousness. That we would not be a people who would do all of that in self-righteousness and in some way believe that it are these things that save us, that there are these things that make God like me more. Church, if you believe that spending time in your word is going to make your God like you more, you have bought a lie. If we believe that we can do all these things to make God like us or to make God want to forgive us more, I pray that we would never be a people who know all about God things, but who have missed the gospel. who have missed the point, who don't truly trust Christ, know Christ. Do you know him? Do you trust him? My number one prayer is that we would be a people who know the gospel and who trust in Christ and Christ alone. I'm reminded of the words that Paul started Romans with. Romans, right back in the beginning, chapter one, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
He says, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, what? The righteous shall live by faith, not by works. The righteous shall live by faith. And I want you to think about something with me. The gospel absolutely flips our world upside down in so many ways. If you don't believe me, just read Jesus, about Jesus' life in the gospel. He was constantly flipping up things upside down. Like first, they're gonna be last. Last, that's gonna be, they're gonna be first. What? Um, save your life, you need to lose it. What? Lose your life, you will find it. Just flipping everything. Flipping everything. Uh, how about die to yourself? that you might live. What? Uh, how, about, how about the fact that the long-awaited Messiah, the king, was born in a manger? Jesus flips world upside down. The gospel church flips everything upside down. And I want you to think about this, and I want this to be the big takeaway this morning. The gospel is really good news to the broken, to the hurting, to the sick, to the abandoned, to the sinner, to the one who needs forgiveness. The gospel is really good news to those who are sad, who are mourning, The gospel is really good news to the anxious and to the broken. In fact, um, at the beginning of that sermon that I quoted earlier from Jesus, if you remember how he starts that sermon, he says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones that are going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They will be satisfied. The merciful, for they're going to receive mercy. The pure in heart, for they're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. Blessed are you. Because your reward is great in heaven. Do you hear it, church? It's not blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the put together ones. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the good ones. Blessed are those who are naturally just better behaved. See, the gospel turns things upside down. The gospel, the good news, is good to the broken. And I got to add to this. Do you know who the gospel is not good news for? the self-righteous, to the ones who think they can do it on their own. 
to the ones who work and think that they are going to be saved because of it, to the proud, to the arrogant. Have you ever read the Gospels and wondered why Jesus, you're friends with sinners, and yet, oh my goodness, you are in direct opposition to those Pharisees. What's going on there? Church, it's the same thing. See, the gospel is good news for the broken, and yet the gospel stands in direct opposition to those who believe they do not need it. This is exactly what Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 32. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying up a stone, or laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Quoting Isaiah 28 here, Paul reminds them of what we just saw in Jesus' words. He reminds them that the gospel is a stumbling block for the self-righteous, but salvation to the one who believes. And listen to what Paul goes on to say here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he says, is that they may be saved. This is Paul's heart for, for these people, Jewish brothers and sisters that Paul cared so much for, who were trusting in works over faith. This is his heart for them. His prayer is that they might be saved. And listen, I think this says it all. Oh, I think this says it all. Paul says this, for I, that's Paul, he bears witness, bears them witness that they have a great zeal for God. Like, they're on it. Like, they are, they are, they have a zeal for God. There's a striving. They are rocking the Torah, right? I don't think that's a phrase they would have used, but you know what I mean. They have the zeal, the zeal. But then Paul says, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they don't know. They don't know. How heartbreaking, and I, hear me, church, how heartbreaking is it that we could be in and around the work of God, the things of God, that we could be in and around it and yet not know, yet not see, this is them. They did not know. They did not see. And if we are not careful, this can so easily describe church, the American church. Describes so much of our community. Listen, in, in, in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that'll get us in trouble, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, because they're ignorant of Christ's righteousness on their behalf, they try to be good on their own. Because they do not truly know Jesus, they, ju they try to justify themselves. Because they do not trust in Jesus, they try to place their trust in themselves. And I wonder how many of us can ever relate to that tendency. In our community, Listen, so many of us have heard about Jesus. In our community, 
So many of us have heard about Jesus. They know about his life, his death, his birth, his resurrection. Most of us, most in our community have heard this. But if they're honest, maybe they just don't see why it makes any difference. Why does this make any difference at all? Maybe you are here, maybe you are hearing this. And right now you struggle with this because maybe you view Christianity as a set of rules. Like, don't do that. Do that. Um, Act this way. Do these things. Vote this way. Care about those things. You should be this. Maybe that is your view of Christianity right now. A set of, of things for you to do. And maybe if you're, if you're honest, you would believe that if you do all of those things and you do it in the name of Jesus, you got to be good. You're good, right? If you do it all in the name of church, if you do it all under the Jesus banner, obviously you're okay. If you do the right things under that, then then you are going to be fine. And as we buy this lie, it can be really easy for us to become a collection of people who are just acting like we've got it all together. To come and to act like we just got it all together. It's easy to become a collection of good people. It's so easy to become a collection, really, of of really modern Pharisees. As sad as this is, I've actually heard from many people when I've asked to come to join us in church, I've heard from so many people who have given me a similar answer. So many have told me that they don't go to church because at church, everyone has it all together and they're all perfect and that's not me. And so I can't go. I can't go. I don't fit. They're, they've got it together. I'm a mess. So maybe when I'm not so messy, I can... Church, nothing could be further from the truth than that. Nothing can show that we have misunderstood the gospel more than that. Because church is not a collection of people who have it all together. In fact, church is the place that we can... Lay that stuff down. We can drop, finally drop that act, that charade. We can lay it down and we can come together in grace and not works. We can come together not rejoicing in our sin, but we can come together confessing in our sin. Knowing that there is forgiveness. Knowing that God doesn't save me because I'm awesome. He's not looking for awesome people to join his team. And we can come together in grace, constantly pointing to the grace of Christ in the cross. That's what the church is. Again, the gospel is good news to the broken. The church, we're, we're broken and saved by grace. That's who we are. And I want us to learn from this text, um, church, just, just don't rush by this. The, uh, the Jewish people that Paul is, is talking about here, they had the law of God, like literally the law from God. 
They, they did it. They memorized it. They obeyed it. They practiced it. They, they had, they did it all. Like they did it, they did it all. Not perfectly, but they did it all. And they did it all in the name of Yahweh. Like they did it all. They did all of God's things in his name. But church, in this text, it is clear that despite all of their efforts, they were lost. And Paul prayed that they might be saved because salvation, church, it's not about good behavior. It's not even about good behavior in the name of Jesus. Good behavior in the name of the church, good behavior, good works in the banner of Christianity. Christianity, again, coming back, is about trusting and knowing Jesus. I've said this before, but Christianity, when you boil it all down, is a religion of work. But here's where it differs. Unlike any and every other worldview, Christianity is just not about your work. Christianity is about the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Let's finish our text. This is why Paul says at the end of verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's take this in. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, if that's the path you're taking, if that's where you're headed, if this is how you're seeking to justify yourself, to attain goodness, you will not get it. You will not arrive. You are lost. Because church, you are not saved by works. You are not saved by changing your behavior. I need you to hear me here. You're wrestling with your faith this morning and what you truly believe. I need you to hear me. Salvation is not found in you just simply trying real hard to change your behavior. That is an empty cup. It might, it might like, seem like it's going to be a good, day, good thing. That leads to emptiness. God wants to change not only your behavior. He wants to change your heart. Work-based religion stands in direct opposition to the gospel. Your works, they do not save you, and they don't keep you saved either. We stand on grace and grace alone. Um, remember at the beginning, I said this was going to be a really simple, really simple sermon. Gospel-centered, intentionally simple. Listen, it doesn't get more simple than this. You cannot save yourself on your best day, let alone your worst days. You cannot save yourself. You can't even make yourself more savable. And one day you are going to stand before the Lord. And on that day, if it were up to you and your righteousness, there would be no hope. Our righteousness earns hell for us. That's the wage. But 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake he made him 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, meaning Jesus took your sin and gave you his righteousness. This grand, beautiful exchange. And in light of this, I can't help but be reminded of Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. You don't need to turn with me here. Just listen. This is good. Paul is reminding this church, hey, 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 listen, you were once dead. Not just a little dead, not just a, like, mostly dead. You were dead, dead. You were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked. But then in in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul turns the corner and he says, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And then what? By grace, you have been saved. Verse eight, he says, just in case we don't get it, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one, no one can boast. No one. I say it again, salvation is provided through grace. It is only because our God is gracious. And this grace is not earned by you. It is a gift received by faith. Following Jesus is about faith. If you are seeking and searching this morning, come to Jesus. Lay down the striving and the working and the performing, the emptiness. Lay it down and rest in him. Trust in him. Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Come to Christ this morning. I want to end by, by reading an, an old hymn. This is so good. This is going to be our call together. I want you to listen to this church. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Listen to this church. And if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. And so as this hymn encourages us, arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace you in his arms. Let's pray together, church. God, the gospel is good news to those who are broken and hurting. And I pray that for each and every one of us, for each and every person here, each and every person listening to this, who is hurting right now, who is broken right now, who is struggling right now, I pray that right now, just peace of God, just that you would rest it on their hearts.
for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So we come, all who are weary, sinners, broken, needy, wounded, sick, sore. We come. Knowing that you will embrace us in your arms. And Father, for anyone here who is maybe walked in with a little bit of swagger and self-righteousness. I pray in your grace that you would break us down. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the stench. And let us see that we are saved by grace and grace alone. So we arise and we go to Jesus knowing he will embrace us in his arms. We give you glory and we respond this morning to your word in Jesus' name.